Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. You can now have a pint in a pub, a meal in a restaurant and hug someone, even if rather cautiously. But as the country opens up in what Boris Johnson has described as an irreversible unlocking, cases of the so-called Indian variant of coronavirus are rising. So will the Prime Minister need to delay the unlocking plan for June? We're going to talk about the tough choices facing the government. And international travel is back on too. Or is it? Ministers got into a muddle this week as they try to explain where people could fly to and whether they should leave the country at all. We'll take a look at the travel plans and whether they're working or not. And whatever decisions are taken now are going to be raked over in the eventual inquiry into the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis. The Prime Minister has promised that one will be held next year. What needs to be done to make that useful? We'll ask our resident inquiry expert to find out. Joining me today in our virtual studio are IFG Senior Fellow and former Number 10 Advisor Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Hi there, Bronwyn. Catherine Haddon, our senior fellow and expert on all things to do with ministers and constitution, is back again. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. And it's a podcast debut for the newest IFG recruit, Matthew Gill, who's recently joined us as a senior fellow on secondment from the British Business Bank. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Hello. Uh, it's great to be here. Great. And very good to see you in the office. First impressions of the IFG, as long as they're kind. Yeah, really enjoying it, actually. It's been it's been wonderful to meet such a great bunch of colleagues and to start participating in the kind of discussion we're going to be having today. Exactly this kind of thing. Okay, well, more to come. Let's start with the COVID unlocking. What might be just the hardest decision that Boris Johnson has had to make since the start of the pandemic, whether to go ahead with the pace of unlocking or, and this is the fear gripping ministers right now, whether to roll back on some of the relaxations which kicked in only this week. Giles, perhaps you can start us off. And this is really about cases of the Indian variant or B1617.2 to give it its proper name, isn't it? Yes, it is. And um, for those of us who've just been, I mean, I've been following COVID with less attention over the months, as I've just heard the vaccination stories coming through and seen us at the top of the charts and all of the occasional stories you'll get in the good press telling you that, in fact, it's very good against uh, fatality, it's very good against hospitalisation, it's very good against transmission, and the figures remorselessly rising. I've been assuming that the idea of returning towards anything close to lockdowns or restrictions was gone. So I've been slightly taken aback by uh, the politicians' nervousness and the modellers' nervousness that um, if you take all of the worst-case possible scenarios, you could be back in a situation where um, we could be seeing the same sorts of numbers we saw in January or February. I find it very hard to get my head around because surely – what we've we've gone through in the last few months is really high levels of vaccination has achieved something, and yet the politicians are incredibly nervous again. I, I don't quite get it, and um, I feel like saying continuously, "I'm not an epidemiologist," but but what exactly um, could have we done to avoid the need to still be nervous, if not the things we have been doing? That's that's my big question. So I'd be very surprised if they um, reversed to a significant degree, simply because. A lot of members of the public and members of the Conservative Party would be going, well, what was the point of all that inoculation if it doesn't um, stop us from panicking when the numbers are so low? All right. Really good start of question. Um, the, the, you know, the, the signals from government are changing almost by the day on this. We had the prime minister on Wednesday night suddenly saying he was even more cautiously optimistic than I was last Thursday about sticking to the, the roadmap for opening up because uh, reassuring figures coming through just in the previous few days on the Indian variant. So stuff really changing. Matthew, 
What do you make of this? And, and what do they need to know about the Indian variant, say, to know whether it's safe to stick to the plan? Well, I think, as, as you say, the, the, the judgment's been changing, and that's an indication that, it, that it's quite finely balanced. And so I think the, the, the key question about the Indian variant is, is just how much more transmissible is it than the variants on which we base the assumptions uh, underpinning the roadmap? Because government obviously put the roadmap together much earlier in the year. And since then, the vaccine program has gone probably better than expected. But we've now got a variant which is more resistant to the vaccine than expected and which grows faster than expected. And so whilst we're hopefully heading in the autumn to a position which is, as, as Giles described, where, we're, where the population is largely vaccinated and we don't have to worry, you know, barring some other variant coming coming out of the woodwork that we don't yet know about, the question is is how we get there and whether the the, the increased prevalence of the Indian v- variant derails that in the short term and causes us to get there through another spike in infections and 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 that is a is a really difficult judgment. If government could be could be overcautious and try and keep things very very tightly controlled, but uh, if you if you if you open things up too quickly beyond a certain point, the, the exponential nature of that could 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 easily still cause a problem. Kath, why is this so hard? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things is that, you know, we've touched on it just now. There's various different measures that the governments have been looking to over, you know, the whole of the pandemic period to judge how bad things are getting, um, you know, what they should do and so forth. And Giles has mentioned one of them, which is obviously um, the rate of deaths from coronavirus. Before that, it seemed to be a sort of a reasonable connection between rates of hospitalisation and rates of infection. What we now have questions about is what if those things aren't necessarily connected? Is there still high risk? So if the vaccine is relatively effective still against this new variant at reducing severity, reducing deaths, might you still have high numbers of hospitalisation? Might it be enough of an impact on the NHS that you want to be worried about it? Even if you don't have that, will you still have high enough rates of infection that you might either risk a lot of people, especially younger generation, getting ill enough, perhaps getting long COVID with all of the health implications of that, or with higher rates of infection, will you get more chances of further variants happening, which means that, again, they could you know, affect the quality of the vaccine, whether or not it's effective uh, against them in the future. So there's, there's kind of a, a range of different risks that the government have to analyse in all of this. And we are at the moment talking about relatively no, low numbers. But what they're trying to do is predict from that and try and get as much data as possible as soon as possible to understand what the trajectory might be. So we're not really talking about just what's going on right now. It's about is there a risk that we get in a situation where come, you know, over the course of the summer, September, October, you're then seeing higher rates at that point because we didn't address it now. So it's, it is a much trickier question than just simply we've got massively rising infection, massively rising hospitalization and, and massively rising death numbers, and we need to act quickly. This question is a lot more finely balanced, as Matthew said. And, and it seems to me, Bronwyn, that um, the, the unknowns are even more unknown themselves right now. That, For example, one of the things I imagine might be different about the, their analysis now than last autumn is 
we're worried about the unvaccinated population and the distribution of that unvaccinated population is really important because if they're evenly distributed, the very broad vaccinated population, that's shielding them all. Remember, that's what herd immunity is about. If you vaccinate enough people, the unvaccinated start becoming protected because the virus can't spread. It keeps coming across a vaccinated person, assuming that transmissibility has still been hit. But if the government has information that the unvaccinated people are all kind of clustered, either geographically or in communities, perhaps, and here I'm guessing, but, but perhaps they're saying, well, the problem is if it gets into them, that 30% or whatever it is of the population, it explodes amongst them. And for them, it's just like March 2020. And then the uh, fatalities are really awful. And those are the sorts of headlines we can't be doing. But the trouble is, it's really hard to know what the government thinks it knows and how, how its modelling now works. But um, I'm assuming it's something like that. And this is one of the reasons that the projections have been changing almost day by day, isn't it? That they're trying to work out whether some of the pockets where this Indian variant is are actually typical um, and, and thinking that maybe they're not. Maybe there's a higher proportion of unvaccinated people. Maybe there's a lot of multi-generational households living very close together. So, it, you know, the, the first figures might have been, you know, more pessimistic in a, in a, in a way. But, I mean, if, the, if you're just talking about the NHS, if it's not overwhelmed, if cases are rising, which they are, but deaths aren't, which they're they're not at the moment, does that change the calculation? I think it does for the prime minister in particular. I mean, he throughout um, all of this time, you know, he's he's constantly said, "I don't want to lock down if I don't have to," and he's um, you know frequently the government have stressed that death numbers was their greatest concern and saving the NHS, preventing sort of catastrophic you know problems there. Um, was their biggest concern. So I think from the Prime Minister's point of view, especially, and we'll perhaps get onto this, um, given the politics of this, his instincts will be to try and avoid too sort of greater restriction, too much sort of reversing of the roadmap, unless the, the picture looks particularly severe. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, the best option that you might have chosen epidemiologically, but given all the different factors that he's considering, I suspect that's where he'd go. And what we've got at the moment is apparently that hospital admissions are fairly flat in some of these hotspots of the variant, which is encouraging for that kind of thing. Matthew, what do you reckon? Is this a taste of things to come in the sense that normal isn't going to be quite what it was? Are there going to be outbreaks that are going to require surge testing, you know, local um, intensity of, 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 of trying to deal with this, even possibly national lockdowns? I mean, is, is normal really some way away? Well, I don't think we know yet. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist either, Giles. But um, if if we look at what we what we know about the vaccine effectiveness, it appears to be effective against the Indian variant. And you would assume that if we get to the autumn and the majority of the population is vaccinated and the vaccine is effective against the variants that are prevalent, then we should be able to get back something that's relatively normal. But there's a, a mix of issues here in terms of the the capacity of the NHS the scale and distribution of the unvaccinated population and the veracity or the strength of the of the of the variants that are, that are in circulation and those mixes may come together that you know the the NHS is not overwhelmed if we all behave normally and in which case we're back to normal but it may be that those things coincide in a way that we actually need other measures like ongoing restrictions or ongoing tools which um, which help here like like test and trace surge vaccinations or we need greater NHS capacity 
at that time. And, and the, the biggest unknown here is the variants that we haven't yet seen. Uh, and with COVID as prevalent as it is around the world, it's got to remain a risk that, that those come into the country. And, and, and I think we need to be prepared for a situation where we might need more NHS capacity and or more ongoing tools or restrictions to, to, to manage this on an ongoing basis. Really interesting question about the NHS capacity, which will come out of this. But we've seen even with the Indian variant uh, that it's in more than 40 countries around the world, including Australia, which has incredibly tight um, restrictions. So we have to assume there will be more variants, you know, just keeping coming on this. Kathy, you were mentioning the politics. So let's just turn to that now. Who's most influential in this? Well, I mean, you've got to believe that, you know, Johnson's backbenchers, especially the uh, COVID recovery group, this, this group of conservative backbenchers who've been pushing for easing of restriction or, you know, not even having them um, in the, um, at all, they're going to be a big impact. We know that the Prime Minister spoke to his backbenchers last night and was, again, trying to sound optimistic and that the data, you know, did seem to be improving. And the key data here that we're talking about is, um, scientists last week were concerned that this might be 50% more transmissible than even the Kent variant, which we know back in Christmas was far more transmissible than the earlier variants that we'd be, or the earlier versions of COVID that we've been dealing with. Now they're looking at 20 to 30% more transmissible, but they'll only know in the next couple of weeks whether that's true or not. I think it is a factor. We've talked throughout about um, the pressure on Johnson in terms of his backbenchers not wanting to rely on Labour support, particularly for these kinds of measures. It's also the kind of Prime Minister that Johnson wants to be. We know his cabinet are relatively split on some of these issues. Some want to be more cautious uh, and want to act earlier to try and stop future outbreaks. Others are you know, very concerned about economic issues, about getting the economy back up and running. We are getting to a point now where yet again, you know, the government have to think about when is the economic hit going to happen of of what um, you know, various businesses, what situation they'll be in post-COVID. So there is a lot of politics that he's having to deal with in, in all of this. It's not just simply the data on how this this transmits and the scientists' studies of you know what kind of measures that you you put in place. And that's why it's so crucial that he doesn't just rely on vaccines. He also uses all the range of different measures at his disposal, including the quality of testing, but also things that we'll get on to discuss, like you know how he deals with um, the borders and international travel. Which we are coming to. But Giles, what's your take on this and particularly the, the constituency for opening up the economy, which feels as if it's more subdued? I think it's re- it's a really interesting situation because, I mean, one of the things we've noticed, it, does, it seems that the public is very understanding of this government's posture and kind of remembers the last actions it took and that the last actions, therefore, have a really important significance. And one of the concerns I'd have as a government conscious of the need for this to be a kind of constant management of disease for the government going forward is you don't want the last thing for it to have done to be something that proved the sceptics wrong. So in other words, if they overreacted now, uh, um, normally we'd say there's no harm in overreacting because, you know, health trumps everything. But if they overreact and it turns out it was an overreaction and the the sceptics, the people from the from that group, including people like Lawrence Fox and Toby Young and all those, say, aha, we knew that you just didn't get it right. You don't understand this thing. You're always jumping at shadows. That You don't want that to be a fact that remains in the public debate as you start trying to develop your long-term policies. You want everyone to have confidence. And you want people also to have confidence in your intermediate measures. You don't want the only thing that definitely works to be the most absolute lockdown. You want the test and trace system to be working, the border controls to be working. 
And so if you overreact too much now, you won't have a chance to test out these other more nuanced tools, these local tools. So I think um, my concern is that the politics always points towards being extremely cautious, because that's roughly where the public is. And the public is much more likely to be unforgiving towards somebody blundering and letting the outbreak happen. But there are risks on the other side, and the government has to navigate them. Well, we'll come on to those through the summer, and particularly the autumn, when some of those um, really, really difficult uh, economic decisions are going to bite home about withdrawing support and so on. But we're not there yet. We've got the summer before us. So let's turn to the question of travel. Book a flight to somewhere fun and warm, or don't, or do, but don't go there or go there and take the risks. Not for the first time, the government has got itself in knots over which countries people should travel to, or indeed, whether they should travel at all. There are green lists, amber lists, red lists, and it's not very clear where you can go, should you go, and so on. So joining us to help explain all this is another recent IFG signing, researcher Rosa Hodgkin. Hi, Rosa. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us at the Institute and on the podcast. Um, You've been trying to follow the government's plans. In short, is it straightforward? I actually think the plans themselves are fairly straightforward. The issue has come in the presentation of them and the decision to go with the traffic light scheme and the comms around that, not least in the fact that various government ministers seem to have different interpretations of what those plans mean. How do you mean? Just take us on a bit into that, what the the different interpretations have been. So in the course of 24 hours on Tuesday, we started off with Environmental Secretary George Eustace saying that people could go to ambulance countries to visit friends and family. Then the Prime Minister came out to say that was not right and people should not be travelling to ambulance countries unless they had an essential reason. Then James Bethel, Health Minister, took that even further and said that people shouldn't be travelling at all which prompted another rebuttal from the government. And a spokesman came out to say that travel to greenest countries was okay. And then last but definitely not least, Simon Hart, the Welsh Secretary, said that for lots of people, essential reasons did include holidays. All right. So something a bit less than straightforward. And to make a point that our Brexit team has been making for a long time, there's two sides to every border. And even where we've given the go-ahead to visit countries, those countries haven't been entirely sure, have they? So there was a lot of uncertainty about whether Brits could, in fact, go to Portugal um, or they could leave, but uh, whether or not they could actually get into Portugal, they can. It was resolved. But do you think the government should have given more time to this? Yeah, I think in presenting the green list as kind of the great unlocking of travel that was going to create confusion because in reality there's only 12 countries and islands on that list portugal is probably the only mainstream holiday destination and when they announced it it wasn't clear whether you could go to portugal at all even now only portugal and gibraltar are allowing unvaccinated british tourists without quarantine so presentation of the list as the unlocking of travel is a bit misleading it really only unlocks a couple of countries 
I mean, there were points of farce when Portugal looked uh, uh, uncertain about whether or not people could travel. And uh, Israel, which many people had booked uh, tickets to, was suddenly erupted in shells and missiles and so on. Um, it looked as if Brits could really only go to Gibraltar. We're a bit better than, than that. But, Kath, when the government first announced this traffic light system, it was supposed to bring flexibility. What do you think of the, the planning of this? Yeah, it feels it feels like something where on paper, you know, this was supposed to be a system where there was gradations, there would be different kind of measures. They had all sorts of measures for how they would allocate countries to either the red, amber or green, depending on, you know, green is effectively you can travel with, you know, very few restrictions. Um, amber is still you've got to have lots of quarantining um, in either direction and, and red is, is basically don't go there. The reality is it kind of goes to the point Giles was making earlier. The government have had to get much more cautious about this because the international picture has changed. So whereas Amber was supposed to be, you can sort of go there, but do so cautiously. Now it's effectively a red list because um, the, the government are saying, please don't travel unless you have to. Um, it is slightly different because, you know, compared to red list countries and uh, the reasons for not going to them, there are a, a range of other supposedly essential reasons why you might go to an amberless country, but you still have to have restrictions in place. But given when the traffic light system was first put out in, in early April, it was supposed to be a kind of this will be a way in which you can travel sort of safely and we'll leave it up to a certain amount of personal choice. The government have then got themselves in a bit of a quagmire in terms of how much personal choice they actually want to give to people, uh, particularly on amber list countries of, you know, it was presented as if you can go there, but we'll restrict your behaviour when you come back, which is similar to the situation last summer. And instead, it's now got itself in a situation where it seems to be saying, please don't travel there. And that's a lot of that is to do with the experience over India and the failure to sort of close the border there for a you know, couple of weeks that seems to have contributed to the, to the variant coming into this country. Well, let, let's, let's, let's come on to that. Thanks for that. Uh, Matthew, do you think ministers should take more responsibility for not having shut the border uh, with India earlier? Well, I mean, I think that they've made that decision as as a ministerial decisions as 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 with the others um, with advice and, and and absent having set up an independent body with a set of criteria to take responsibility for those decisions. I don't think ministers have got any alternative but to take to take responsibility for the decisions they've they've made. Whether that decision was right or not depends a, a bit on what was what was known at the time. But given the the conversation we were having earlier in this podcast about the uncertainties around the Indian variant, it seems as though there would at least have been a justification for caution. And Rosa, let me ask you whether you think the government's got these reasons right, um, because there's an awful lot of talk of holidays and about you know Brits uh, desperate to flee from this terrible weather and go and lie on a beach in Greece. But actually, a lot of people have family members abroad, don't they? They're a very international country. Is it right to have portrayed this as as a rush for holidays? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it's right that there is a level of flexibility in the amber countries. Because, for example, if your parent is dying in a different country, of course, you should have the option of going to visit them and quarantining on return. And some of the rhetoric in the media this week around people dashing off to amberless countries is quite judgmental. And we don't know how many of those people are just going for holidays versus because they haven't seen family members for a very long time. I actually think Kath's interpretation of the rules shows one of the problems because the government guidance 
was actually on their website was clear from the beginning that you shouldn't be traveling to ambulance countries apart from for essential reasons. But the way this was presented as the great unlocking of travel has led a lot of people to interpret Amber as meaning, well, you can go if you're willing to quarantine on your return, which was not, I think, what the rules were actually designed to do. I think that puts it very well. Giles, you were on the podcast last week when we were talking about Australia's almost total shutdown of borders, perhaps for another year from now. I mean, controversial, but Australian coronavirus numbers have been tiny compared to ours, although the Indian variant has got there too, as I was referring to before. Should we have been tougher like them? I mean, we, we certainly have made some mistakes. We were very slow, bizarrely slow, given we'd just left the EU at the beginning of this um, crisis, not to use that. And I think there was some bad advice going in there that it was too late and it didn't make any difference or something. We also didn't really appreciate the importance of variants um, early on. And it does sound like an obvious mistake was made with the Indian one. Perhaps we were just thought we were doing so well with vaccination, that, rather like my complacency earlier in this podcast, that we thought nothing could really touch us and we could be casual or political in these in these decisions. So, yeah, I, I think this has that has been important. I must admit, looking at the Australian case, I mean, we, we all learned to say that the people saying we could be fatigued of, head, of lockdowns got it badly wrong. We were w- willing to put up with it way, way longer than we thought. But there has to be some kind of a limit. And going on for full years when there are vaccines fully available, I don't want to sound like the person who's all in favour of opening up all the time. But there must be some limit at which people say, oh, hold it a minute, there must be something else that you could do than this. Um, I think it would have been harder for us. I think we're a, rel- we're a really relatively open country. We export services much more than commodities, which is where Australia is. So economically, it'd be a much more significant problem for us. So I'd be very nervous about um, about trying to ape that kind of a policy over here. And I think the Australians themselves are going to have to start asking questions soon and asking surely their government has a plan B. Interesting. And do you think that the decision on the Indian variant, the comparatively late um, locking down, might have been influenced by Britain's desire to do deals on migration visas, trade with India? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely the the case. I mean, I'm not in the councils, but it's so important to this government to show that it can do non-EU trades and uh, trade deals. And India India is one of the most important potential um, partners for one of those. So I'd be amazed if that wasn't one of the really key criteria. Before we move off this topic, dare I ask, are any of you planning to go abroad? No. No. I'm not, no. I had been hoping to and looking hopefully on TripAdvisor to nice Mediterranean islands, looking at their vaccination rates. But yesterday we got a puppy and I'm now wondering whether we'll ever be allowed to leave the house again. So it, that might be ruled out now. Matthew? I've found that life is just a bit too short to try and work out where I can go and where I can't. And I think over the last 12 months, most of the flights I might have booked would have been cancelled. So I'm, I'm holding off uh, for another few months yet. Rosa? Uh, I haven't booked anything, no. I am hopeful that it might happen at some point, particularly with the weather like it is now. But we'll have to wait and see. And Kath, you just sent, uh, you sent me an email on the most marvellous um, where you're spending next week, which is not abroad. No, it's not abroad. I'm, I'm going to see my mum and we're going to travel around the country going to various sort of oak gardens and national trust and um, forests and whatnot and just sort of try and do some day trips and stuff. I've got some other holidays, but they're all UK based uh, or staycations, depending on your definition of those, but definitely all in the UK. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to be in Wales. Though. I, I had just thought about 10 days ago of learning a friend uh, based in Jerusalem, um, a reporter, an email saying we'd like to come and see him and his family. I think not. Rosa, thanks. Great to have you with us. Thanks so much. Right, let's take a step sideways into another angle of this, because everything we've been discussing today is sure to feature in the inquiry into the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis, which the Prime Minister has confirmed will take place getting underway next year. That's something that we at the IFG welcome, because our report, which came out only a few weeks ago, called for Boris Johnson to get on and call that inquiry. And its author, IFG senior researcher Marcus Shepherd, joins us now. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Bronwyn. Marcus, you welcome the news, of course, but you were calling for a much quicker timescale than the one that Johnson seems to be suggesting. Isn't that right? Yes. I guess it depends what he means by starting in uh, spring of 2022. If he means that's when he's going to appoint a chair and start hiring people to work on it, then that's quite late. If he means that's when it will start its hearings, then that's a more you know, promising timeline, I would say. Because it does take time to set these things up, doesn't it? Absolutely. They are you know, they are they are organisations in and of themselves. They need staff, they need offices. There's, there's a lot of prosaic stuff they have to go through to get going. Um, and then once that's in place, they would need to prepare document requests and, you know, do other things involved with, like, you know, um, thinking about consulting on their terms of reference and stuff like that. So they, 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 have a, they have a long sort of lead-in time. So your view is that the government ought to start, if it's serious about this, it ought to start right now with picking the chair, setting the terms of reference and so on. I think appointing a chair is something it can do very soon. As the as our report said, and as the uh, Prime Minister also noted, we need to have a sort of national national discussion about what the terms of reference should cover. The scope of this inquiry is potentially very broad, and I think the terms of inquiry will need to bring that down to sort of a manageable range of issues. But I think uh, get, getting the chair in place is the first act, and there's there's really no reason to delay on that. Well, isn't there a chicken and egg, though? Because, I mean, the terms of reference, if it was going to be a very, very broad one, and there's pressure for you know any inquiry to, to be broader than the, than the people sometimes first think, um, mightn't that influence who's chairing it? Potentially, I guess. But I think in practice, the range of potential chairs is quite small. The pool of people out there who are capable of running an inquiry like this is is fairly small so my feeling is is that uh, come what may it's it's more important to have that chair in place so they can sort of take a view on the terms of reference because as a former chair observed to me when we were researching this paper any chair who accepted these terms of reference on their face value and didn't have any say would uh, not be fit for the job but I think what we're looking at is is ideally a senior judge and you know we know who those are there's, there's only a handful of them in the country so I don't I don't think uh Waiting on the terms of reference to appoint the chair is the right way to do it. I think chair comes first. Why does it have to be a judge? Why not, for example, in this case, a scientist? Yes, there's absolutely no reason why it has to be a judicial chair. There have been many inquiries in the past chaired by um, non-judges. The foot and mouth inquiry was chaired by a scientist. The inquiry, which is probably most similar to this, the Chilcot inquiry, in terms of how it looks at how decisions were made in central government, was chaired by uh, Sir John Chilcot, who was a former official. A judge is a very good choice for this inquiry. They have the depth of experience in that sort of forensic reconstruction of past events uh, that's so vital. They also have um, a lifetime of experience working within the procedures and legal safeguards of the court system. And, And while an inquiry is not a court, 
the way it handles things like the rules of evidence and witnesses follows a lot of the same lines. And so avoiding procedural hang-ups is something that a judge will be well suited for. And I think the other thing, very, very importantly, they they can be trusted to be independent. They can command public trust. Um, this is obviously an inquiry which will be under a lot of intense scrutiny by both the media and the public from the get-go. And I think you absolutely need someone at the head of that inquiry who can not just be seen, but is genuinely above sort of party politics and will put the matter of the inquiry first in all instances. You put it in a really interesting way there. And Kath, I mean, this is a government that has clashed with the judiciary and has a review into the powers of the judiciary um, very much in its sights at the moment. How do you think the government is going to to handle this, I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's it's portraying all the judiciary as is very uh, politicised, but there has been quite a lot of tension there. I mean, I think this is a really interesting question. I, I do agree with with Marcus that they've got to get on with this far sooner, and you know, making that appointment is the important thing. But I do think it's it's going to be a bit more complicated for them than that because the government are going to be very concerned about the person that is heading this. And yes, they will want, you know, to make sure that there is, uh, you know, sufficiently robust person that carries confidence for the public about the way in which this inquiry is going to be held. But they're also going to have their concerns that they're not appointing someone who's got hang-ups about the government, about this government, or about past behaviour between the government and and the judiciary or or anything else like that. So, you know, the the government and this government, perhaps more than many in recent years, does take a lot of interest in public appointments, and it's going to take a lot of interest in this. So it's a sort of circuitous way of saying, um, I really think there's going to be quite a bit of um, thinking about who they appoint in this. Matthew, Marcus was referring to how big this inquiry might be. Do you worry that it could be too big to succeed? I think it's got to be pretty big to succeed. Um, it will certainly fail if it's too narrow and doesn't cover the areas that the public is expected to cover. This has been a massive national crisis, and I think governments needs to be seen to be learning the lessons from the way it's handled it comprehensively um, throughout. So I actually don't think there is any alternative to quite a wide-ranging inquiry, and I think the government recognises that, which is why they've called it. And Marcus, does it matter if this inquiry runs beyond the general election? No, and I think the... The deadline of the general election is obviously one that will attract a lot of interest, but it, from the point of view of the inquiry, it's it's a either an irrelevant one or an unhelpful one. The inquiry needs to sort of work at its own pace. I think what we would expect is, hopefully, if it if it if it is set up, you know, in the next coming months, a series of interim reports that will be delivered as and when findings are ready. I don't know how the chair will manage it because obviously this is sensitive, but you know, maybe we would expect something akin to the Perda rules to apply, like you wouldn't expect it to drop a report, you know, a week before the election. But I think other than that, expecting it to deliver before the next election, whenever that might be, is probably unrealistic given the, just the, the, the breadth of the scope. But I would expect to see something um, in the interim, a final report probably after the next general election. I know, that's really interesting. Giles, one person who's sure to be called before the inquiry um, is Dominic Cummings. What's, mm. he, what's he up to? Well, well, he, he did a fascinating, I think it was 21 long tweet threads a couple of evenings ago, where he, he kind of, he danced tantalisingly in front of us the idea that there's some incredibly dangerous documents that the, the world will come to see. And it was frustrating because at the beginning it was very, very sensible. It was all about how... Um, 
envying Sweden is crazy, and the, the trade-offs between um, lockdowns and the economy are actually not really there, and stuff that actually needed to be said, and it was good to hear that the government was thinking. And then suddenly it lurched into, this is how it worked with the Manhattan Project, or the moon landings, and this, what I would call centralist over-optimism, that if you just put the right mega brains and decisive managers in the center they will be able to solve anything and they would have done things like human challenge trials on vaccines which would have meant we're all being vaccinated by september or something which i think is disappointing because most people i think the experience of being in government ought to just tell you that the trade-offs are inherent and it's not just because white little civil servants are slow or biased or have bad incentives and Massive military campaigns and military projects are just not the model for how this kind of a massive social program needs to be managed. So it'll be really interesting to hear what he says. But I think in large part because of the, the sheer politics of a really important, really clever advisor so close to the prime minister only months ago having very, very different loyalties and incentives now and saying it all in public with his wonderfully florid language. But as for, I don't think he's going to reveal the blueprint for how it all should have happened because that will be heavily discounted. Nobody knows how it all should have happened. Kath, so where does the opposition fit into this? They've been calling for this inquiry, but doesn't it do part of the job that they ought to be doing? I mean, well, they won't have access to the same kind of material that the inquiry would be doing. So, no, I don't think it does. I mean, their job is obviously to pressure the governments, to challenge them, to scrutinise them, to ask questions and so forth. Mostly, though, they're trying to do that in real time and they're trying to do that with a sort of huge information deficit in terms of what actually is going on in government. Actually, there's been quite a lot of information they've been able to to point to throughout the pandemic, but the judgments are so difficult, you know, the the understanding of, of how you might make decisions and so forth. It's very hard when you've got limited information, you know, big decisions happening and so forth. So all the questions we've got that the inquiry will answer for us are the kind of things that we haven't been able to know over the last few months of different roles that individuals played about key pieces of information, who the prime minister was listening to, how well um, various decision-making bodies worked, all those kinds of questions that the opposition haven't been able to cope with. Um, But just going back to Giles's previous point, I mean, that kind of points to how the inquiry over the course of its life will make a difference because we will have information that's put out into the public domain, key, key, you know, documents and so forth, but also we'll have evidence sessions. So like the the Dominic Cummings one next week, but probably far more so because it will be more forensic. And like Chilcot, we will have some very big set piece um, evidence sessions that will happen probably before the next election. And those might change the public narrative, um, even though they'll just be sort of, you know, brief insights and not the whole story about what went on. Yeah, as we've seen in the past, they can become the most compelling show in town very quickly, rivaling the Prime Minister and his media suite. Marcus, just give us a quick uh, taster at the end. What's your kind of your top inquiry in the sense of being most successful and what's one that really didn't work? That's a really good question. I think the inquiries that have seen the most success in the past are the ones which benefit from perhaps sort of narrow focuses. Uh, So Piper Alpha is... The Piper Alpha disaster was an oil platform that caught fire due to a series of, uh, you know, issues with machinery and stuff like that. Its recommendations were fully adopted within a year um, by the oil and gas industry and by government. But that enjoyed quite strong tailwinds. It was the largest insurance liability in Lloyd's history. There was huge sort of financial pressure on the industry to reform if it wanted to sort of continue being able to access finance. So that was obviously a success. I think. One that would 
there's several that sort of, you know, varying degrees of failure, I would say. Uh, Leveson was a very long process that ultimately didn't have much impact. The Bloody Sunday inquiry into um, police shooting civilians in Northern Ireland ran on for 12 years and Lord Savile, who chaired it, sort of massively overinterpreted his terms of reference. And there's one one comment, but it tried to reconstruct the trajectory of every bullet, which made it take 12 years. I think that was, that was a failure in the sense that it, it didn't deliver the answers people wanted. And I would say also the first... Hillsborough inquiry, the Taylor inquiry, also perhaps that's a good comparison to one like this because it's it sort of the need to meet the grief of, of the families who'd lost loved ones. That one really was seen as unsatisfactory on that account. So I think hopefully this inquiry will look more like Piper Alpha, although I think in terms of what it's trying to do, it's it's more like the Iraq inquiry because it's trying to get into that central government decision-making, which in itself is quite nebulous and complex and intertwined sort of as Giles alluded these things are very hard to sort of split apart and decompose but I think and again also as Cal said just 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 the act of telling the story hopefully will be will deliver the resolution and and lessons that we can learn to make things better in the future. Well I'm sure we'll all be gripped to it. Marcus thanks for keeping on top of all that for us. Thank you Brandon. Well, that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Giles Wilkes, Matthew Gill, Rosa Hodgkin and Marcus Shepherd, And thanks to you all for listening at home. If you enjoy this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. Keep an eye out for a special inquiries event ladding in your podcast feed soon. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review while you're there. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So the country is unlocking. We're all on an irreversible journey. Or are we? See you next week. Have a good weekend.